this is Jerry DiPiano, and you are listening to the Love Mia Vita podcast sponsored by Fem Pharma. This afternoon, my guest is Dr. Heather Hirsch. Dr. Hirsch is an OBGYN and an expert in women's health, especially during midlife and menopause, where she places a great deal of her emphasis. Dr. Hirsch is affiliated with Harvard University and Brigham and Women's Hospital. Heather, welcome to the Love Me Avita podcast. We're so excited to have you as our guest today. And the topic that we are going to discuss with our listeners is one uh, that we get often, and that is what are some of the weird symptoms of menopause that I should pay attention to, but perhaps they manifest themselves, or at least they appear to be something other than as a result of either perimenopause or menopause. So uh, that, that is the topic for today, and it's based upon the questions that we often receive from individuals that reach out to us via email, through our support email, or on our chat function on our website. So I know that's a topic that is near and dear to your heart. And perhaps you also want to uh, let our listeners know that there's a book coming out. (laughs) (laughs) Well, thank you so much for the wonderful introduction. I'm so lucky to have known you for, I gosh, I guess maybe two years or so at this point. And what a great topic for today. And I think that when we think about menopause, If we think about anything, we think about hot flashes and the vaginal dryness. Um, But, you know, there's so many other things. In fact, there's, I think, a list of like 26 or 32 symptoms. And the reason I don't even know is because I've stopped counting um, that, that can go along with menopause. And I think it's really important to uncover some of these weird or strange or unusual or perhaps not formally associated with menopause symptoms to help women better understand what's going on in their bodies at this time. It's it's absolutely true. When we think about menopause, we think classically of a hot flash. So that's the one that often comes to mind. And then we, we do receive a number of calls from women who will say, I have vaginal pain, or I have pain um, and itching, or I have burning and, and itching, and I, I'm going to the bathroom more frequently. So urinary urgency, and that is the reason why we've changed the description of genital from genital ur- or for genital urinary symptoms of menopause, which used to be called vaginal and vulvar dryness. So we've expanded that. Mm-hmm. A whole host of other symptoms that fall beyond the pelvic and reproductive organs that also appear to be caused by the decline in estrogen. And yeah, yep, yep the link between estrogen and some of the other hormones in our body and the other organs in our body may not be as well appreciated. But one of the ones that we often hear about is insomnia and insomnia and sleep disturbances. So let's chat about that for a moment. I think this is a great place to start. And there's many reasons that uh, trouble with sleeping starts to creep up even in perimenopause and then through the menopause transition. 
And sleep to me is one of those four vital things that if sleep goes, so many other things, you know, can be affected by the poor sleep quality or quantity. So there's a couple of things that we know. Insomnia classically is trouble falling asleep, um, but women will also have the tossing and turning or the dreaded wake up with a night sweat, hot flash, and then can't fall back to sleep. And then occasionally waking up too early. So you put all those things together. It's also not uncommon that a woman might have more than one of those. So, you know, that can be so stressful. One of the reasons the trouble falling asleep, which is your classic insomnia starts around perimenopause, we think is because of actually the decline in progesterone, which declines even earlier than estrogen does. Progesterone for many women is kind of a calming and sleep inducing hormone. It's the one that rises the first trimester of pregnancy. If a woman's ever been pregnant, she might remember feeling like pretty tired and just wanting to sit around. Now that's massive levels of progesterone, but you get the idea. Um, second, uh, the waking up, tossing and turning, and the temperature irregularity is due to the volatility in estrogen levels, and then eventually the decline in estrogen levels as you go through menopause. Um, and of course, the not falling back asleep, that goes along with the ruminating in the mind things that happen when we start to wake up. That anxiety could be from the loss of progesterone, or what you have is a vicious cycle where um, we start to fear our bed because of all of these things, because we are, you know, programmed to think, oh, this is going to be another crappy night's sleep. And so there's so much that goes into uh, not just the decline in sex hormones, but then the psychology of sleep that really contributes to sleep decline in women in midlife. And you mentioned uh, during this last bit, the rumination and the utter state of panic, <laughs> looking at the bed and hating the bed, resenting the bed, probably resenting the man that's or woman <laughs> next to you in the bed that is snoring and enjoying a good night's sleep. <laughs> we, we also understand that there is that aspect of the panic attacks that sometimes arise. And that is something that women don't appreciate often, that panic and panic attack and mood disorders will increase during menopause. So they, they may not have been present prior to entering menopause, or, or perhaps they were not as obvious. But during perimenopause and menopause, it, there's an exacerbation of symptoms. And panic attacks can happen when we're not getting a good night's sleep, but don't necessarily have to be associated with that. Exactly. And um, there definitely is also a rise in extreme anxiety, which can lead to these panic attacks. Again, you know, actually even more so in perimenopause, the time leading up to menopause, um, and we're not exactly sure why, could it be because of the progesterone and the estrogen? Could it be a triggering of uh, catecholamines from the adrenal glands? It could it be a stress response? Could it be an, an environmental response? Because women in the midlife transition, traditionally 45 to 55, although I see women of all ages, um, you know, also have the sandwich effect, which is their hormones are changing, their anatomy is changing, they're not sleeping, you know, et cetera. 
and uh, they're taking care of kids and parents and houses and spouses and pets. And so it's such a time for anxiety. Uh, and then you couple that with the sleep. And again, there's that sort of vicious cycle of not sleeping, also having anxiety, a reduced ability to cope with that anxiety because you're not sleeping, the fearing of the next night's sleep, and almost the like psychological click that you have of, I know I'm going to have a bad night's sleep, and on and on it goes. And it is really important because the truth is many women are caregiving and many women assume that something's either kind of off with them or wrong with them, or it will get better or something. And they spend years in this state. And if we can do anything, but let you know, okay, breaking the cycle earlier is going to be better. And there are ways to do that. That is, that is, that is, if that's the takeaway so far from this show, that is really good. So when, when women have panic attacks, there are certain ways in which they manifest themselves. So oftentimes we'll hear that women believe that they're having a cardiovascular event, mm-hmm. heart attack, put it in layperson's language, and they feel chest pain. They feel breathless. Maybe, it, maybe they, they feel that they have pain in their left arm or in their back that radiates from their chest to their back. And those are symptoms that they shouldn't ignore. But what, what are the classic symptoms of a panic attack and how should women address that? So, you know, this is a really good, good question because at the same time, we also know cardiovascular events can present differently from men. So here's, you know, sort of, I think what can be the most helpful Sometimes women do fear that it's a cardiovascular event. And because we all know that's an imminent danger, they may immediately go get checked out. And if you kind of get the all is okay, you might get the sort of dismissive crazy lady look, which sucks, but you know, um, then you can say, okay, you know, I think then you can reverse engineer this of my heart is okay. Um, And that can bring your fears down. And then it's working a lot through what are triggering these um, and being able to really have the wherewithal to separate them from a cardiovascular event. A really easy thing, you know, is having like a pulse oximeter, oximetry, you know what I mean? The thing you put on your finger to check your O2 levels. Sometimes that would be an indicator if that's going down, that that's more severe. A panic attack, you're usually going to have normal oxygenation, even if your heart is racing and you're sweating, but your oxygenation level is going to be pretty normal. Cardiovascular events, actually, most of them actually are painless, um, which is kind of interesting, or they feel like pressure, but not so much pain. A sharp pain, or sorry, pain that's also longer lasting is also less likely to be cardiovascular. Cardiovascular pain tends to be dull, tends to be um, like feeling like a pressure um, and uh, doesn't typically come along with, you know, uh, what do I want to say? Things that provoke anxiety. Now, that's not to say that there are never say never, but I think once a woman's had been checked out by a cardiologist, maybe you've done the treadmill test where you run on that um, and everything's a okay 
Then it's about doing mantras if these things happen again, of being able to take deep breaths, calm yourself down, work on lowering your heart rate, which women can do by putting some pressure on their neck or even you know a gentle pressure on the wrist, things like that. Because if you can bring that heart rate down yourself again, it's probably not a cardiovascular incident. So I think even though it sometimes can be a pain, it is probably worth getting it worked up the first time or at some point. And then, you know, if, if, if it is not cardiovascular in nature, it's about working through that anxiety and those panic attacks. It's good. It's good advice. And obviously added to that, whenever in doubt, visit your healthcare practitioner. So Although Dr. Hirsch is a board certified OBGYN with an extensive amount of training, she's not providing you your individual medical advice. So if, if in doubt, always contact a healthcare pr- practitioner and be sure to rule out what might be something that is more serious. I'm going to say that three or four times during this podcast, and I always caution that although we are sharing information. It is not meant to replace the advice of your personal physician. So just be be certain to keep that in mind. Now, along with these panic attacks, uh, women aren't sleeping. It sounds it sounds miserable. I mean, I've been there. I'm still there. Um, but the you know they're they're not sleeping. They may be having what they think is a cardiovascular event. It's probably a panic attack. Once they've ruled out all of the other bad stuff that we described. And now your bones and your joints and everything is hurting. Now, that's also something that we don't appreciate. We always say, oh, we're getting older. And, you know, perhaps, you know, we're not in the same type of shape that we were when we were running marathons, if we ever ran a marathon, <laughs> in the 20s, early 30s. So things are going to deteriorate. But there is an exacerbation of joint aches and pains. And we know that there is a decline in hyaluronic acid that keeps our joints nice and lubricated and also a decline in collagen. And that happens to be a function of our favorite hormone. hormone. So um, share with us some of your observations from the work that you do with women in menopause. Lots of complaints. Joint aches and pains is very common. And I would say in my, in my view, in my opinion, and this is probably because I always ask it on my intake form. And, you know, if a doctors or you as a patient are thinking about menopause, um, it's the obvious thing would be to think that they're separate, that it's aging or that it's wear and tear. And not to say that that is not one big reason, but another big reason is actually the loss of estrogen because we have estrogen receptors, which can help support joints that as we go through menopause, that can cause joint aches and pains. So joint aches and pains is a question on a pre-validated survey called the menopause rating scale. And you don't really need to know other, other than that, but what that means is that that intake form, that question is on pre-validated surveys that many academic hospitals use, which should be another indication that joint aches and pains is, is actually a fairly common, uncommon symptom of menopause or commonly untalked about symptom. 
of menopause. And the reason we also know this is that clinically, if a woman chooses and is a good candidate for hormone therapy, not every time, but, but a good portion of the time, those joint aches and pains improve, which the proof therefore is in the pudding. That's kind of the scientific experiment. We replace the estrogen, the joint aches and pains get better. Now, if they don't, then we say, aha, okay, well, it's not this. We rolled it out. Now let's think about osteoarthritis, rheumatoid arthritis, etc. So it is a fairly common symptom of menopause. Now, when, when you do have these joints, aches, joint aches and pains, there are probably different ways in which to ameliorate that. So we talked about women who may be candidates for estrogen or hormone replacement therapy, but there are many women who are probably listening to this podcast who are not candidates or are concerned about the use of hormones. Perhaps they just want to avoid them altogether. And so are there other ways in which women can deal with this or, or help to ameliorate some of these symptoms? Well, you know, there are some things that, um, that women can do. Um, there are some good supplements in this area. So um, sometimes things even like CoQ10, costochondroitin, um, and other supplements can help support joint aches and pains. Um, you know, simple things too, like movement, can help. Um, now, you know, that's always this kind of funny, well, it's hard to move because the joints hurt. Um, things like swimming, which is low impact, can be a good idea. Or even like an elliptical, if, if there's a machine that you can use, because again, low impact or biking, because you do want to keep the joints lubricated and not just become these stiff, inflammatory sites. Um, and so there are definitely things that you could do. So it's important to recognize that if you are a candidate for any type of hormone replacement therapy, and that is your, and that may solve your problem, that that is one option. We're a big believer. We we do not do um, hormones at Fem Pharma. We don't do prescription meds. However, we believe in options for women, and if that is one of the options, then that's that's something that you may want to explore with your healthcare practitioner. But there are different ways in which to address this and. Um, as you illustrated, it could be as simple as using something like a hyaluronic supplement, oral hyaluronic supplement. If you are interested in using chondroitin, that's another option for you. And if it's more severe, you may want to see an orthopedist or, an, or a rheumatologist to rule out some other conditions, but, but those are certainly great options for you. The, um, the other issue that we often hear about, and this is going back to pain, we often hear from women who may have had fibrocystic changes in their breast when they were premenopausal, so in their reproductive years, that they were so excited that after they entered perimenopause, when they were in perimenopause or menopause, that their breast pain would go away. And then we learned that no, they are experiencing changes in their breasts. And this is kind of a thorny one because we don't necessarily want to ignore painful breasts and especially breast changes in this age group cohort, I'll say in your fourth, fifth and sixth decades of life because it could be something more significant, but it probably is not a malignancy. So there are, you know, 
there are reasons for this. Why does breast pain sometimes continue during perimenopause and menopause? Isn't this so fun being a woman? <laughs> yes. Um, so great question and, and, and another great thing uh, to talk about here. One thing that's helpful and can be comforting for women to know that um, you know, pains and changes, especially if it's bilateral, which means both sides or maybe one side, then the other is unlikely to be anything worrisome. That usually means it's a hormonal component or a chemical change or a sensitivity to something in your body because it's happening on both sides. You know, uh, something that, and again, as, as you, I know you will say, you should always get it checked out at first, but more concerning is something that's one-sided, um, that's persistent, um, but sort of a coming and going of generalizable breast pain is so likely to be either hormonal changes or other changes. So breast tissue is really, if you think about a site in the body that's really kind of amped up to all these hormones and their fluctuations and their changes, um, that would be breast tissue. It's basically fat tissue and a bunch of cells that respond to hormones. And the reason for that is so that we can feed babies. And even though that may not happen in your life or it's only for a short period of time, there you have it. And so in perimenopause, um, which again, you know, perimenopause can last if a woman's not having a period that whole time for 12 months and she looks back and says, aha, that was my last period a year ago. Today I am menopausal. That is a really um, classic time for breast changes. Even though you may have stopped periods for a long time or they're very, very infrequent, um, those peaks and changes and, and, and minute levels of estrogen or progesterone can kind of cause little bursts of activity that comes and goes and comes and goes. Um, and that can lead to tenderness, things like fluid changes, metabolism changes, all things that happen in the postmenopausal transition as we have insulin resistance, we might actually have change in breast tissue, may actually even grow. Um, sometimes it's becoming more fatty and that's, that's okay. Um, that can cause breast tenderness or shift in tenderness. People will notice that they might go up a bra size in menopause. And those can all be reasons as to why. Women can also develop sensitivities to all sorts of environmental things that even though you know, you're not necessarily premenopausal, these can still affect breast tissue. And, and it's usually generalizable, meaning both sides comes and goes, and that can really kind of continue. There, and as you indicated, it's if it's bilateral and you are, you know, particularly if you're on hormone replacement therapy or using hormones, you may start to experience more of the breast tenderness, the engorgement, et cetera. It could also be musculoskeletal. So should, we shouldn't rule out the musculoskeletal. We just talked about joint aches and pains. And sometimes this can manifest itself as what we think is breast pain, but it may be um, conditions that are affecting the chest wall, the esophagus, the neck, the upper back, or, or even the heart, right? So those are, those are some other reasons that this may be exacerbated during menopause. So you may see some non-cyclical uh, changes in the breast tissue that may feel like they are breast pain when they should be attributed to some other condition. Again, it's, this is not that uncommon during perimenopause and menopause. 
And there are things that can be done. So first things first, right? Rule out anything that could be scary. And that means doing your part to have your work up. So if you're eligible for your mammogram, don't ignore it. Go and have your mammogram done. Make certain that you've done exactly what needs to be done with, the with a diagnostic component. And then you want to, once you understand that, then you can begin to examine what other factors might, might play a part in this breast pain. But not that, un not that uncommon to have breast pain, whether it's cyclical or non-cyclical during perimenopause and menopause. And we don't talk about it enough. Mm -hmm. Then is the, um, we, we have something that is probably not that obvious, which is the heart palpitations. And again, these are, uh, these are things that we shouldn't ignore. So if you feel that you're having heart palpitations, you shouldn't ignore them, but it is not uncommon to experience more heart palpitations during menopause. I guess the question for our audience is when do they start? I, I've actually experienced heart palpitations and it is very frightening. And we actually bought a little device. Um, it's a, a little monitor. So it's an EKG um, monitor and you use your index finger and um, you can actually uh, look at your EKG. Um, it's Bluetoothed. I don't encourage everybody to go out and do that. However, if you're having them frequently, um, for me, it made me feel more comfortable knowing that I wasn't having a cardiovascular event. Mm-hmm. It can be really, um, I think palpitations is one of these also commonly, but um, commonly but uncommonly associated symptom of perimenopause. And I once interviewed uh, uh, Dr. Dara Lee Lewis, a cardiologist here in Boston, and she had this wonderful way of explaining to me that the AV node, which is the part of the heart that basically sets the rhythm for it beating, ba-boom, 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 is controlled by our old friend estrogen. And as our hormones change and as that estrogen level declines, um, and it's a little bit volatile, especially in perimenopause, that volatility in hormones alone can make that AB node uh, throw out extra beats or skip beats or et cetera. And every once in a while, you can actually feel that. And then it's kind of called a palpitation. So it's like, ba-boom, 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 ba-boom. And, and when you feel it, that's scary. That releases catecholamines, those stress hormones, et cetera, which again, the cycle can also continue to cause more palpitations. Um, and it's really quite common in the perimenopausal uh, transition and the perimenopausal years because of simply that volatile and fluctuating estrogen level setting off or irritating that AV node, just causing heart palpitations. So again, it's, it's something that we don't often attribute to perimenopause or menopause, but it's something that may happen if it does, if you start to experiencing no need to, I hate to go back to panic, no need to panic. We're going to take the necessary steps to rule out what perhaps may be something that is more significant, but probably unlikely to be attributable to a significant event. Always rule things out. Um, and it may be menopausal or it may be something more significant, but if you're generally healthy, you're probably dealing with a menopausal symptom. The there's There are two others that I want to 
pull together. And one is allergies, rashes. So skin changes and allergies and rashes. And I kind of put them in one bucket because we notice that we notice our skin changes, right? Our skin continues to change from our 20s, 30s, 40s. What, what's not necessarily appreciated is that allergies, we, allergies that we may never have experienced in our 20s or 30s may start to appear in our 40s and 50s and beyond. And in addition to the skin changes, which we pretty much know about, we may also start to experience these weird rashes. And that's something that is also a menopausal or perimenopausal change that is underappreciated. Exactly. And um, this one got so many people chiming in when I um, posted about this once on social media of women sort of never making that connection or thinking, oh, I never had breakouts or why am I getting adult acne, rosacea, allergies. This is crazy. I've gone, you know, four or five decades of my life. And now this, you mean you're going to say I'm menopausal and my skin's going to change. But we think that also those sex hormones control a lot of things that go on to cause skin irritation, essentially, or to, to kind of um, make a broad sweeping statement, like histamine release, and also sensitivities to certain products. And so histamine, when the histamine is released or the histamine is in not well controlled, that can cause, again, um, more responses uh, almost into that allergy type of realm than you um, may have not experienced before, but now all of a sudden you are. Um, the skin uh, also changes because of the loss of estrogen. There's uh, changes in um, hydration of the skin, elasticity of the skin, the collagen makeup of the skin. So sometimes also sun damage can be easier to see. Rosacea might even just be easier to see. Or because of the quality or integrity of the skin changing, that can predispose you to these types of skin conditions. Now, even things like adult acne can happen because you might actually you might actually be one of those women where your testosterone increases, and that's actually because of a stress response. So I, I love the idea of this podcast and your introduction because there is this hormonal milieu and changes that are a little different in every woman that can cause all these symptoms not traditionally associated with menopause, but really are quite linked to this domino effect of these change, loss, increase, decrease of all these really important hormones and in some cases, neurotransmitters. So the skin changes are absolutely real. Do you, as far as the, um, the changes that women are experiencing, do you recommend that women pursue um, a battery of laboratory tests so that they can determine sort of where their baseline is, because we know that each individual woman is different. So what may be going on with my thyroid or my adrenal glands or with my, um, my hormone levels is likely to be different than someone even of the exact same age. And knowing what your baseline is and then seeing how to work on the change could be a very natural change that we need to adjust, could be your blood sugar levels are out of whack. But 
do you do you often recommend that women pursue that type of testing? What is what is your general recommendation? You know, that's a great question. I think there's an individual component to this. Some people really like to know their numbers. They want to know their body inside and out. And lab tests, they're not perfect because they are a snapshot in time, but they can certainly give people data about their body. But what I always say is it's data and it's not rock solid set in stone. And it doesn't mean that symptoms or uh, clinical recommendations aren't still even, even arguably more important than your lab work. So I like to offer my patients not necessarily a full battery of everything because that might just complicate the picture and confuse people because the number of lab tests you could order on any given person are, you know, numerous. But, you know, it's certainly um, things like checking your sex hormones, your estrogen, progesterone, testosterone, arguably progesterone is not all that helpful, but you can a follicle stimulating hormone or FSH, an A1C, knowing your fasting glucose, um, your cholesterol numbers, your blood pressure, your thyroid numbers, your thyroid panel if you need, and then anything else based on what other conditions you may or may not have is really nice. Now, if a patient also says, oh, Dr. Hirsch, I hate needles, or um, do I really need to do this? Or, you know, I don't want to expose myself if I don't need to, if, you know, especially in the last few years, I say, you know, we can always do them at another time. And I'm a pretty good detective because there are also a lot of clinical signs that you can use. Um, but we've also talked about in this show, you know, various conditions that could require further workup, breast pain or cardiovascular you know, concerns. And so those should get a workup at first, most likely just to rule out anything that could be troublesome. So some people want more than the standard labs. And I always say, okay, that just means we might not necessarily know what to do with them. And I might not even necessarily know what to do with them, but we have them and then we can follow them later. And again, some people will say, Dr. Hirsch, I'll do whatever you say. And some people say, eh, I'd rather not know. So, so for those women, I say, besides for just your standard labs that you need, you know, with your routine health and physicals, then fine. We can kind of, you know, use your clinical signs to address everything else. That makes sense. And I, I think that the, the bottom line for any of what we just shared with our audience is that you do need to see the healthcare practitioner, but but don't, absolutely don't lose your perspective. It's easy when we're in the moment and we're experiencing some of what we just shared on this podcast to throw, think we need to throw in the towel. Oh, I probably you know have this serious medical condition and we wanna keep things in perspective. We wanna see the health, our healthcare practitioner, great advice, Heather. We can be certain that we also share with our healthcare practitioners. So if we're seeing a primary care practitioner for some of what we just discussed, because these, these appear to be more the types of conditions that we would want to communicate to our dermatologist or to our primary care practitioner, we also want to share with that, that individual that we are where we are, whether we're in menopause or perimenopause, because it may not be obvious. They're not thinking about what's going on necessarily with our sex hormones. They may be assuming that this is something other than having a connection to the sex hormones. 
So we, we wanna be sure that we share all of this knowledge. And if possible, we want to be certain that we have done our job and communicated to the healthcare practitioner that we need some insights, right? We need some insights and whatever those insights yep. are, whether it's, I need a prescription for a mammogram, I need some insights, I'd like to have my blood work done. You have to be your own advocate. And it doesn't matter whether you have all of the letters behind your name that Heather does, <laughs> you are your own advocate. So if you're concerned, ask your healthcare practitioner. Perfectly said. So on the next podcast, we talk more about what other actions can be taken to address some of what we just discussed. So one of the nat some of, there are some natural ways in which we can improve our sleep and deal with some changes in our skin. And that's for part two. So we hope that you will join us for part two of this podcast, which is really solution-based. And that's what we like to help our women listeners with, the solutions to some of what are kind of thorny issues when we are in this fourth, fifth, and sixth decade of life. It's all good. Um, there are lots of benefits to being in this phase of life. We're certainly more knowledgeable. We have earned our stripes. We have figured out how to juggle. We are wiser. And we are still our best selves as long as we take care of ourselves. So Dr. Heather Hirsch, thank you for being our guest on the Love Me Avita podcast. It's always a pleasure having you with us. And for those of you that, that are listening to this podcast, Heather, in addition to being a very prominent physician at the Brigham and Women's Hospital, is also a mom. She has three kids and she's just produced a book that should be very helpful for all of our listeners. And we can't wait to share more about the book as soon as Heather is willing to disclose more details. So stay tuned. Stay tuned. It's going to be such a great, great addition, great resource for all women with all types of these symptoms. So, well, thank you so much for having me on the show. I appreciate it. So until next time. Thank you and love Mia Vita. <laughs>